You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb, and he saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. As she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw the two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have lain him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. And Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning, Father. We pray that you would be pleased, Lord, to bless us this morning. We ask, O Father, that you would give us, Father, insight and understanding into your word, O Father. Lord, shape as we've already prayed, shape and mold us, Lord, in the likeness of our Lord. In his name we pray, amen. And amen. Well, this morning is probably going to sound a lot like Easter time. A lot of times this is the text that we look at uh, at Easter time. And I, I want to say we are allowed to preach on these texts at other times of the year. So it is perfectly permissible to do so. And I, I will make a confession that uh, a, f- a few months ago, I was thinking about skipping this particular section. Actually, I was thinking about just closing things up in John's gospel for a while and then picking this up in the spring uh, for Easter because I'll let you in on a little secret. It's not really a secret, but when you preach, you know, we don't follow a church calendar per se, but we do set aside Easter Sunday, we do set aside Palm Sunday, we do set aside at least two, generally four Sundays for the advent of our Lord, for the, um, for the Lord's stepping in time, space, and history in the person of Jesus Christ. And after you do this about 15 times in a, in a row in a year, you start to think, what am I going to preach? 
what am I going to preach next time? But the Lord's always faithful, you know. He's, he's always faithful to give you a message. And this is a passage of Scripture I've preached on many, many times. And what I'm always amazed by is every time you, you delve into it, God is always so faithful. Uh, sometimes maybe you don't see anything that's necessarily new, but you're reminded of the things that are so very, very important, aren't you? So this morning we might not come across anything that we would say is necessarily new to us, but we are going to be reminded of something that is so very, very important. And that's the point that I want to make this morning. It's just the importance, the foundational importance that the resurrection is to our faith. It really is uh, so foundational. And I want to spend a little bit of time on something I usually kind of skip over, and I don't think we should skip this over, but You'll notice that our text begins with a time frame. It says, on the first day of the week. And I think it's, I think it's a sentence that we can just read right past and not think a whole lot about, uh, the first day of the week. But, of course, that language is coming from Genesis chapter 1, isn't it? And you don't need to turn there because I think most of us are familiar with Genesis 1. I was thinking yesterday, was, I was thinking about how to introduce this sermon. I was thinking, you know, if you, if you decide you want to read through the Bible, um, surely you make it through the first chapter of Genesis, right? We always make it that far. It's like usually we, we don't start dropping until we get out in Leviticus somewhere. And that's where many people, uh, you'll see a lot of people kind of drop because you know, sometimes we just don't know what to do with uh, a lot of the priestly stuff. When, uh, we might even find ourselves falling by wayside in the second half of Exodus. Uh, what do you do with the, tab the tabernacle? What do you do with all the temple furnishings? And you can think, uh, you know, how do we make application of that? But surely we make it through the first chapter. And, you know, the, probably the most famous sentence that's ever been written in the English language is Genesis 1.1, uh, which reads, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. In verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And then God said, let there be light, and there was light. Simply by speaking, it comes into existence. And God separates the light from the darkness in verse 4. Verse 5, God called the light day, and darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And that's where this language, the first day, comes from. And as you read through the creation account, you find that there's uh, specific things that are created, spoken into existence in accordance to each day. The pinnacle of creation being the creation of mankind on day six. And then when we get to chapter two, we find thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. And of course, this is where uh, we get the idea of a Sabbath from. And when we go back to John 20, and we turn back to that passage and we look at this time frame that John has given us, and I lost my place here, and back to John chapter 20, uh, the first day of the week, uh, we also know from the context that we've been studying that the Sabbath day is pertinent to this context as well. Because if you look back to chapter 19 and verse 31, we're told that it was the day of preparation. 
so that the bodies would not remain on the cross. Now, what is the day of preparation? Well, it's the, it's the preparation for the Sabbath. We're told that. Now, what is the Sabbath? The Sabbath is the seventh day. We get that from Genesis 2, right? The Sabbath is the seventh day. In our, according to our calendar, it's Saturday. And that's why we um, celebrate Good Friday, if you will, and, and sometimes someone will ask the question, maybe you've asked the question yourself, why do we call Good Friday Good Friday? Because after all, the greatest crime that has ever been committed under the sun and the greatest crime that ever could possibly be committed under the sun was committed on that Friday, namely submitting the Son of, the son of Man, submitting Jesus Christ, the only innocent human being who's ever walked this planet, submitting him to the most cruel form of execution known to man. How can we call it good when the worst crime under the sun was committed on that day? We call it good because God used the worst crime that has ever been committed to accomplish the most good that has ever been committed, didn't he? I mean, it's good for us to sit and think for a moment that every human occupant in the new heavens and the new earth can only be there because of what Jesus accomplished on that day. It'll include all of us. It'll include everyone who's gone before us. It'll include everyone who comes after us, won't it? We'll be indebted to Jesus and what he has done for us, for our, our, our life there. So that's why we call it Good Friday. And the point is, it's Friday that Jesus is crucified. Saturday is the Sabbath. That's why uh, before the Sabbath would come, the chief priests wanted the bodies taken down. Jesus' body is taken down. It's put in a tomb. And we come to the first day of the week uh, in chapter 20. And sometimes, not that often, but once in a while, maybe some of you have been asked this question, sometimes someone will say, why do we worship on Sunday? I mean, why don't we worship on Saturday? Has anybody ever been asked that question? Has anyone ever asked you that question? Sure, there's a couple of hands up in the air. It's not asked all the time. But it is asked on occasion. And what answer would you give? I mean, I think sometimes it's a question we don't even think about. Um, we don't give any thought to it until someone asks us why. You might say, well, I never thought about that. I don't know why. You can give a one-word answer if you want to that question. The one-word answer would be resurrection. You thought I was going to say Jesus. I know you thought. Uh, we could say two-word answer, Jesus, resurrection. But um, when we say resurrection, we're, of course, um, thinking of Jesus' resurrection. And someone might counter and say, well, there's no explicit. I've read the New Testament. There's no, like, verse that I could find that says, okay, now you shall cease from worshiping on Saturday and you shall worship on Sunday. And I really don't want to turn our sermon this morning into, a, you know, an apologetic for why we worship on Sunday. But uh, I do want to say a few things about it. it and you might, it might help you to turn. Acts is the very next book if you're turning towards the back of the Bible. And if you look at Acts chapter 20, we get a little uh, snippet from Paul in Troas. And uh, this particular story is probably much more famous for Eutychus following out a third-story third window. Um, if you aren't familiar with the story, Eutychus was sitting in a window very similar to one of these windows while Paul was preaching. And Paul preached well into uh, the midnight hour. And Eutychus falls asleep, and this just happens to be a third-story window, which will really put it into perspective. He falls asleep and falls backwards. Uh, 
And I've never shared this with you, but I do have one apostolic gift. Has anybody, have I ever told anybody, some of you are getting nervous as I talk this way. Has anybody ever heard about my apostolic gift? I have an apostolic gift. Have you ever heard about it? You ever heard about my apostolic gift? No. No. It's not, if you fall, we don't permit anyone to sit in this window because if you fall out the window, okay, it's not going to be good. I don't have the gift that Paul, see, the Apostle Paul ran around down to the sidewalk and he saved Eutychus. He raised Eutychus from the dead. I don't have that gift, but I do have the gift to put you to sleep. So, and that's the only one I can say that I have. And I'm going to try not to do it, especially as we have some brave youngsters who said, you know, I'm not going to go to junior church this morning. I'm going to stick it out. And I'm not just going to stick it out. I'm going to stick it out in the front row. So uh, I am going to try really hard to, to make you not regret that decision, okay? Um, but there's a detail here in this text. If you look at verse 7, you see it already, don't you? The first day of the week. You see that? the first day of the week. And what's happening on the first day of the week? Well, we're told that they were gathered together. And we're told that they're gathered together to break bread. Now, it would be possible to take the breaking of bread as simply meaning they gathered together for supper. They gathered together for a meal. We could take it that way. But I, th I think what's going on here is they're having communion. And there are a lot of biblical interpreters that are saying they're having communion. And the fact that the Apostle Paul is preaching at this, and he preaches well into midnight, I'm not going to do that. You'll be happy to know. We're not going to go clear to midnight. But um, I think what we have here is a worship service. And what is really clear is the apostles, uh, they begin to worship on Sunday. That doesn't mean they didn't attend Sabbath uh, uh, services in the synagogue, because we know that they did. But I think when we look at Paul, for example, going into the synagogue on the Sabbath, which would have been Saturday, uh, he's, going in to take, he, he's going in to do evangelism, be a perfect place to do evangelism, uh, perfect place to open up the Old Testament Scriptures and show that they all speak of Christ and they're all fulfilled in Christ. But we find that the apostles are meeting, if you will. They're meeting on Sunday, and it's been the practice of the church uh, to meet on Sunday for the most part. There are uh, some of us who are convicted that uh, we're still to meet on Saturdays, and there are some who still meet on Saturdays. But at any rate, back to John chapter 20. We're told it's the first day of the week, and it seems only fitting that we should be here on the first day of the week because every worship service, whether it's on Easter Sunday or whether it's on any given Sunday, should be a celebration of the resurrection. Amen? I mean, we're here to celebrate. If it weren't for the resurrection, we wouldn't be gathered here this morning. Uh, no question about it. It's foundational to our faith. Now, we're told also about Mary Magdalene. And the interesting thing about this is all four gospel writers not only mention the first day of the week, but they also mention Mary Magdalene. And sometimes, uh, sometimes you'll have critics of the Scriptures or even skeptics of the Scriptures say, you know, you can't trust the resurrection narratives of the Bible because they don't jive, they don't line up. And if you ask them, well, why? Give us an example. They'll say, well, John only mentions one woman, and the other gospel writers mention multiple women. Okay, well, um, let's speak to that for a couple of minutes. You know, you know, if you talk to detectives, and I've come to know, you know, when I worked at the courthouse, 
I got to know a couple of retired detectives. And when you, when you talk with them, you know, if there's a crime that's committed down on, on Main Street, for example, and there are four people who see the crime, and perhaps these four people are persons of interest in this crime, what do they typically do? They'll gather up those four people. They'll bring them, to, bring them down to the station, if you will. They'll put them all in four individual rooms, and they'll question them all independently. Now, if... All four people give the exact same answer. What is the detective going to conclude? It's scripted, right? Why? Because as human beings, and especially, might I add, as fallen human beings, that's, not how, that's just not how it works. It's never how it works. Uh, if four people happen to see something take place down on uh, Main Avenue, if you will, uh, they see a crime committed on Main Avenue, and you call them, and assuming they're not in on it and they're telling the truth, you're going to get four eyewitness testimonies. And the basic testimony, they're all, going to, they're all going to jive, although there may be some questions. Uh, you're not necessarily going to get four testimonies that can be mapped on top of each other to where from those four testimonies you can recreate everything that happens and make a schematic of everything that has happened. Now, sometimes people try to do that with the Scriptures, and they try to make a schematic of everything that has happened. I've got books in my, in my library where people try to harmonize that, and you get several authors, you're going to get some, you're going to get some basic things that are going to be the same because there's things that are clear, but there's other details that aren't quite so clear. And let me give you one example. Why does Jesus appear to Mary? Now, some of the old preachers would say because of her devotion. She stays after all the other women leave, and, and there she is crying, and she remains in the garden. And, and that's an application that you perhaps have heard made. It's not an application I'm going to make this morning. Um, I, I'll tell you why. I, I, it might be true. But I, I don't necessarily believe that Mary's devotion is necessarily greater than the others because she stays behind. Why? I might have said that 10 or 15 years ago, but I've been in too many funeral parlors since then. And you cannot judge how a person's feeling by whether they're in the funeral parlor or they're not in the funeral parlor, or whether they're by the casket or they're not by the casket, or whether they have done this, 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 or this, or they haven't done this, this, or this, because we are all different. And just because someone, just because you see somebody in the funeral parlor and you can very visibly see that they very much love the person that's deceased, that does not mean that there isn't somebody who wasn't there who is just as broke up about it. I believe that there were many people, many people who were grieving over the death of Jesus Christ. And that's why I say, I don't know the answer. I don't know why God in his sovereign sovereignty reveals himself to Mary Magdalene like this. But what I do know is he did. And what is John doing? John is giving us a glimpse of Mary's experience. Because the authors of the other Gospels don't do that. And John is adding that for us. And I think as we begin to understand this, and that's why I've taken the course that I've taken throughout the study of John's Gospel, is because I'm trying to let John do the talking. 
I've said that over and over again. I haven't been carefully harmonizing every detail as we go along. Uh, that might have been something I would have done uh, 10 years ago because the people I studied under and people I listened to, they, they, that was their practice. But I, I have since believed that each gospel writer tells his story. They're going to jive on the basis. There are no contradictions between them. But, they, but God in his divine sovereignty has given us these four eyewitness accounts for our edification and for our growth in grace. And they each tell the story. And what is John doing? He is focusing on Mary's experience that she has in the garden. And it is for our edification, isn't it? Let's let John speak here. What is John saying? Well, he's saying that Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Now, our skeptics will say, see there, there's another discrepancy. Uh, John tells us that they came while it was still dark, and I think it's Mark that says they were there when it was daylight. Oh, there's a, that's hardly a discrepancy, isn't it? You know, some of us have, had, uh, have, have done the... the, the, uh, uh, the uh, uh, what do we call those? The, the sunrise services. You know, we used to have those, and and um, you know, we we may have them again at some point. The weather's not always understanding around here for a sunrise service. But some of you remember, we found a place in the parking lot there around that little garden area, which is perfect for a sunrise service because you could see you could see the sun come up as the service was underway. And when we begin the service, it's dark, isn't it? That's the point. We want to be there when it's dark. But as the service is going, we've tried to time it. So just as the service progresses, there we see the sun coming up, right? Now, one person could say, yeah, we all gathered while it was dark. And another person could say, we gathered while it was daylight. It was beautiful. Is one lying? Are the two contradicting each other? I mean... That's, you'll hear these things, and that's why I'm sharing them with you. So Mary comes to the tomb. It's early. The stone has been taken away from the tomb. And what does she do? She immediately assumes that someone has tampered with the tomb. In verse number 2, she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple. And it's interesting that she runs to Peter. You know, Peter has fallen, hasn't he? Peter's denied Jesus three times, and yet she still runs to Peter and she runs to the other disciple, who is John, uh, the one whom Jesus loved, verse 2. And she says to them, they've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Now, I think her assumption, she could be thinking it's grave robbery because grave robbery was very popular at this time. In fact, it was so popular at this time that the emperor uh, rendered grave robbery a capital offense. There was so much of that going on. But my guess is she is thinking that it's the chief priests who are at it again. Why? Because the other gospel writers tell us that there was a guard posted. There were two Roman soldiers guarding the tomb, and it was sealed. Who else could have access to this except for the chief priests? And you can almost imagine her on the way to Peter and on the way to John, murmuring under her breath, what have they done now? Probably many other things murmured under her breath. What have they done now? Uh, so she runs to them. She tells them they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they've laid him. She does not come to the conclusion that Jesus has rose from the dead. She's come to the conclusion that someone has interfered. So Peter, verse 3, went out with the other disciple as they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together. The other disciple outran Peter, reached the tomb first. 
Stooping, in, stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. So we have John outrunning Peter. He gets to the tomb first, but he doesn't, he doesn't presume upon to go into the tomb. He stays on the outside. But fitting with Peter's personality, he, he makes his way just shortly afterwards, but he goes into the tomb. In verse 6, we're told that he saw the linen cloths lying there. Verse 7, the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Now, this is really, really significant. This is a really significant detail. Uh, when a Jewish burial took place at this time, uh, they, would, they would wrap the body with these strips of linen, if you will, and they would, they would intermingle spices, aromatic spices, with the linen wraps. And then the body, of course, would be laid flat down. Uh, if it was in the case of a wealthy burial, two coins would be placed on the eyes and a, and a napkin would be placed on the head. And what does the apostles see as they look in the tomb? They see the linen cloths lying there. They see the face cloth uh, that was on Jesus' head uh, lying there. But they see these things folded up. In other words, when they look into the tomb, they don't see chaos. They don't see what you would expect to see if it was grave robbery. Uh, When when thieves go into the house to, to steal, they typically aren't concerned about things being left in an orderly fashion, are they? No, they go in and toss the place. They don't care. They're after what they're after. And besides, if thieves would have been in here, they would have kept these linen cloths. They were valuable. Now, if it had been the chief priests and the scribes who had tampered with the body, they would have just taken the body. They wouldn't have taken them. Why would they, why would they take the time to take the linen cloths off the body and leave, the bo- and leave them laying in an orderly fashion? And because of this, in verse 8, and this is the key verse of the first 10 verses. I'm convinced it's verse 8. We're told that when John, who had reached the tomb first and also went in, when he saw, he believed. Now, a lot of ink has been spilled on verse 8. A lot of ink has been spilled on verse 8 because people ask the question, well, what exactly did he believe? Because verse 9 says, for as yet they did not understand the Scripture, that he must rise from the dead. And some of the ink, it's, it gets sometimes so scholarly. And it's, it, it really just reminds me, it's almost like where you've got all these ivory tower thinkers trying to just overthink this thing. And I said, what exactly, did, what exactly did John see and believe? And it's almost like all these ivory tower guys are just... They're coming up with all of these theories and coming up with all this stuff and overthinking all this stuff when you can almost imagine, you know, a widow who's walked with Jesus for many, many years and who's spent many, many years wearing out her knees in prayer who could say to these ivory tower thinkers, listen, you guys are missing the point. The point is really clear. The point is really obvious. The point is right there in front of you. Do we perfectly understand the Scriptures the moment we believe? Has anybody in this room perfectly understood the Scriptures the moment they believe? Raise your hand if you did. No one would dare raise their hand. Does anyone perfectly understand the Scriptures now? Raise your hand if you do. And then someone will counter that and say, well, wait a second, he was with... John was with Jesus for three years. He was, he was in the perfect seminary for three years. Yeah, but this is new ground here. And something new has happened that is now foundational to the faith that prior to this event was not foundational to the faith. 
But what am I talking about? What I'm talking about is the resurrection. Would we, if we were examining somebody prior to the resurrection event, if they were a true believer or not, we would not require that they believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ because we wouldn't even have that on our, our radar to even require of them. But now that the resurrection of Jesus Christ has occurred, it's not a secondary issue. Is Jesus alive is the question before us right now. Is Jesus alive? And we should ask ourselves that question this morning. I mean, I'm not asking about the concept of the resurrection. I'm asking this question. Is Jesus a real, live presence in your life? When you pray, are you talking to him? Is he hearing you? Is he answering you? Does he protect you? Does he wrap his arms around you, so to speak? Do you feel he's walking with you? These are questions that we should ask. Uh, I believe when John saw that, what happens is not a... It's not the kind of answers that you would give on a theological exam, but it's the kind of thing that you would experience if the first rays of light shone into your heart, breaking the despair of Jesus' crucifixion. I don't know that John had any kind of explanation for what he was seeing, but I think what takes place in verse 8 is the rays of hope begin to fill his heart. And he begins to say, this story's not over. Oh, thank you, Lord. This story's not over. I can't tell you what the rest of the story is about right now, but Lord, I thank you that this story is not over. No, 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 no. Something is going on here. Of course, in verse 10, the disciples went back to their home. And the reason I want to try to get to verse 18 here is because we're, we're brought in verse 11, Mary reappears, right? And, you, and, and I've taken verses 1 through 18 because, because here we have Mary. Mary is a co-star in this, in this story. And Mary reappears. And Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And, she, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And again, the skeptics will say, aha, aha. John says there were two angels. The other gospel writers say there were only one. That's easy to... Only one speaks. The other gospel writers focus on the speaking angel. John tells us that there were two. There were two angels in white, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head, one at the foot. They said to her, woman, why are you weeping in verse 13? She said, they've taken away my Lord, and I don't know where they've laid him. She's, she, you can see the confusion in her poor mind. And where, This is no fault. This is no fault. I have the highest respect for Mary Magdalene. No fault. But in one sense, she's calling him Lord. In the other sense, they've taken him away. You see the confusion. You can, you can understand the confusion. What's going on here? And in verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. The ancient interpreters of this, of this verse, actually, I think going all the way back to Augustine, Chrysostom, Augustine, right in that area somewhere, um, 300, 400 
uh, A.D., suggested, and this is only a suggestion, we can't, we don't know this, but they suggested that the angels pointed, that the angels pointed, causing Mary to turn around. And when she turns around, Jesus is standing before her, but she doesn't know it's Jesus. And that's another question that we really can't answer. How come she doesn't know? You know that question, how comes it? You know the question Calvin used to ask, how comes it? How comes it? Why does it? It seems that when Jesus appears after his resurrection, his identity is somewhat veiled. You think of the two disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24. They walk with Jesus for all those miles, and they don't realize it's Jesus. Mary doesn't realize it's Jesus. We're told in uh, verse 15 that Jesus says, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? And she thinks he's the gardener. It's kind of interesting. Why would she think he's the gardener? First of all, she's there so early. But second, he seems to have some authority, doesn't he? He seems to be the one in charge. So she thinks he's the gardener, and she says, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you've laid him, and I will take him away. This suggests that Mary is a woman of means. We know that Jesus exercised seven demons out of Mary. We know that from the testimony of the other Gospels. But it seems that she has, and also from Luke chapter 8, she seems to be among the number of women who were contributing financially to Jesus' ministry. And you can look at your leisure to Luke 8, verses 1 through 3, and you'll see the details there. Um, she says, Sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you are, where you've laid him, and I will take him away. But then in verse 16, Jesus says to her, Mary. Mary. And this is the game changer. And she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani. Now, this carries us back to John chapter 10, doesn't it? And someone said, well, John 10, Rick, um, uh, remind me, John 10. That's where Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. You know, it, Jesus is very masterfully using and a, a real life of example that if we lived in this particular period of time, we'd all know in a lot of towns, there's a common sheep pen. All the shepherds in the evening bring all their sheep into this common pen, and there's a couple of folks that work shifts watching the sheep. At night, everyone's sheep are all put in this big pen, and someone might say, well, how do they keep from getting mixed up? It's not a problem because the next morning, each shepherd comes out. He calls his sheep. The sheep recognize him, just like our house pets recognize us, and they come out and they follow him. They won't follow somebody else. Call someone else's pet. They might come to you. They might not come to you. But as soon as they see or hear your, your pet sees or hears you, what happens? They run to you. Same thing with the sheep. And Jesus is making use of that in John 10. My sheep know my voice. I know my sheep. And Jesus, the great shepherd, is calling Mary by name, and she knows that voice. She knows that voice. And this is the game changer. You see her clinging to him. We don't have time to go into this verse, verse 17. I'm going to wrap this up. We don't have time for that. But she's clinging to him. Jesus says, do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, not that the tomb is empty. She announced, I have seen the Lord. This is foundational to our faith, isn't it? Someone asked me, I'll say this in closing, sometimes people will ask me this question, and you might get this question a lot more often than you're going to get the question in regards to why do we worship on Sunday. 
But a lot of times people ask me, why, why is your Bible or why is your faith the correct faith and everyone else's faith the wrong faith? And my answer is Jesus. My second answer is the resurrection. Because the resurrection proves that everything Jesus said and did is authentic, didn't it? Now, I don't want anyone uh, falling asleep here. I don't want to exercise that apostolic gift. So we're going to wrap it up right now, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we so thank you, Lord, for blessing us with your word. You have not just given us one gospel. One gospel would have been an incredible blessing, but you've given us four gospels. And Father, you could have just given us two or three for a testimony is true on the basis of two or three witnesses, but you've given us four, Lord. You have superseded, you've superseded expectations, and you've given us four gospels. And we thank you, O Lord, for this particular gospel that really focuses on Mary's experience as she comes to see the risen Jesus Christ. Oh, Father, I pray that all of us have seen you with the eyes of our hearts, that we would see that you are alive. The tomb was empty, but it's not empty because someone stole your body. But the tomb is empty because you have risen. You have defeated death. And more about that, Father, uh, we hope to look at next week. But, Father, until then, we ask for your blessing upon the things we have heard. In Jesus' name, amen.